Ladies and gentlemen, George Cross exemplifies the kind of man Harvard produces. During my tenure at the university, I've seen a change in the Harvard man's character. His sense of personal honor and self-respect has increased. Drunkenness has decreased. It still troubles me to see vices born of luxury and self-indulgence on the rise, but this doesn't touch George Cross. Not only does George exemplify academic brilliance, but he's also a man of great character and determination, as he showed last year at the Polo Grounds when he drove in the winning run in the ninth inning against Yale. The dining room erupted into wild cheering and applause, and George shyly rose and waved to his admirers. President Elliot shook his hand, bowed to the crowd, and left the room, a signal that the eating and drinking could begin. Because Helen and many other ladies were present, and because Caroline Astor had paid for the dinner, it was not a wild male bacchanal that such an occasion might have prompted, but rather a luxurious society event. More than one hundred diners sat at a table that stretched the length of the room. Down its center ran a deep trough bordered by high banks of beautiful summer flowers, In the trough swam three white swans, which glided up and down its length, oblivious to the diners on either side. The eight courses served on silver included consommé à l'impériale, Maryland terrapin soup, red snapper, canvasback duck, filet of beef, cold asparagus vinaigrette, a dish of sherbet to cleanse the palate, and then a saddle of mutton, truffled capon, and fresh vegetables of all kinds followed by desserts and candies. Claret, burgundies, Madeira, and champagne flowed into the guest's glasses as from a spigot. In the background, an eight-piece musical ensemble played on and on, light sounds to enliven but not disrupt the burble of conversation. The party came to an end at about 2 a.m., when Cross found his son saying goodbye to Stanford White, always the very last to leave. George, your mother and I are going now, Cross said, clapping his son on the shoulder. It was a wonderful party. Please be in touch in a few days. Thank you so much for tonight, father. I'll never forget it. George clasped his father's hand, smiling. Hell of a good party, Georgie, old boy, Stanny shouted as he left the restaurant with John and Helen. The night's still young, and I know a place on East 45th that's just beginning to heat up. We're not going anywhere with that blackguard, Helen hissed into Cross's ear as they made their way to a carriage on Fifth Avenue. Cross just sighed. He had long since given up trying to change his wife's stubborn opinion of Stanford White's sybaritic character, especially his taste in women. His guests gone, George walked downstairs to the restaurant's open-air street cafe, settled into one of the carved wooden chairs, and lit a cigarette. After almost six hours in the dining room, the night air felt cool and refreshing. Fifth Avenue was deserted, and the pure silence soothed George after the hours of unending noise. He leaned back and closed his eyes, savoring the triumphant evening. Beautiful night isn't it, George? The voice came from directly behind him. George smiled and swiveled around, expecting to see an admiring classmate. Then his face turned pale, and the cigarette dropped from his lips. James T. Kent 
sat at a table a few yards away, dressed in elegant evening attire, smoking a cigar and sipping a glass of white wine. Just dropped in for a nightcap before heading home after the theater. But now that I'm here, maybe I could have a word with you. It's about a matter of some delicacy. George rose from his seat and started toward the low wrought iron fence that enclosed the sidewalk cafe. But a short, broad-chested man stepped out of the shadows, moving to cut off his exit. I think you remember my business associate, Mr. Culver. Culver smiled at George, but said nothing. Why don't we take a little trip, said Kent.